This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Hello, I'm Bill Hendricks, Executive Director for Christian Leadership at the Hendricks Center. And it's my privilege to welcome you to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Mark Twain wrote, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to reform or to pause and reflect. A similar sentiment, sometimes attributed to Twain, is it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble, it's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And there's a growing body of voices now, bolstered by purportedly unassailable scientific research that claims with great certainty that the human emotion of shame can no longer be tolerated and should be cast into the waste bin of history. Uh, I can think of no one better qualified to speak into this issue than my guest at the table today, Dr. Greg Tins Elshoff, who's professor of philosophy at Biola University and founding director of Biola Center for Christian Thought, whose, whose purpose is to advance Christian scholarship on the big questions of human life. So we're going to discuss one of those big questions, shame. Greg, welcome to the Table Podcast. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. And let me just point out, we're particularly uh, going to be looking at your book, For Shame, Rediscovering the Virtues of a Maligned Emotion. Um, I'm curious, uh, how did you get into you're, – you're a philosophy professor. Yeah. How in the world did you get into writing about <laughs> shame? That seems like something a psychologist would – Yeah, right. Um, um, all of my training in philosophy has come to me through the analytic uh, tradition, but but I um, took a first trip to China back in 2005, mm. and as a consequence of that trip, uh, I found myself interested in uh, classical uh, Chinese wisdom traditions and Confucianism in particular. Mm. So I started thinking and writing about Confucianism, where the shame-honor dynamic uh, looms large. And so having steeped in that uh, tradition for some time, it, it caught my eye when this growing chorus of voices uh, that you you talked about started denigrating shame and 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 describing it as a as an inherently toxic emotion, a, a suggestion which to the Confucian mind is just absurd on its face, and that got me curious. Uh, what's going on? Why 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 is shame uh, being maligned in the way that it is? And what conclusion did you come to on that point? Why it's being maligned? Yeah. Uh, uh, the the simple answer, I think, is that it's being maligned because it's being confused uh, with other um, painful, negative, self-directed attitudes uh, like failures of self-respect, mm-hmm. uh, self-loathing, um, low self-esteem, and the like. If, if you've been taught that uh, shame is toxic, that shame is bad for you, that you should try not to feel shame anymore, it's almost certainly because you've been taught that shame is just the same thing as low self-esteem. And um, uh, so much of what I've tried to do is draw clear conceptual categories, distinguishing shame from low Mm self-esteem, self-loathing, embarrassment, guilt, and other attitudes of the sort. 
Well, and at the popular level, it, it has become uh, sort of inherently uh, problematic, really not allowed to feel badly about yourself anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly not to make somebody feel badly about themselves. Like that's the height of indecency and you don't deserve to be part of civilization at the yeah, point, right? Yeah. Yeah, what's so interesting about the the uh, the social science is that you, you it is permitted, in fact it's uh, thought to be a healthy thing that you should feel badly about your behavior. So the feeling of guilt uh, is is still uh, the dominant voices are still lauding guilt as a helpful even if painful uh, moral emotion. So it's okay to feel badly about your behavior, but it's not okay to have negative uh, feelings directed toward yourself. So that you raised the point about guilt, and I'm sure you get asked this a lot. I know you you cover it extensively in the book. The difference between shame versus guilt. Mm-hmm. Let's be clear on our terminology. Yeah. So uh, for both shame and guilt, it's important to distinguish between uh, the objective condition and then the the emotional response that often accompanies the condition. Mm. So on the guilt side. To be guilty is to um, is to have violated a standard. Uh, so you can be um, legally guilty if you violate a legal standard. You can be uh, guilty of cheating in a game if you violate the standards of the game. You can be morally guilty if you violate the moral standard. But to be guilty is just to violate a standard. And then the feeling of guilt is just that painful emotional experience that you have when you violate a standard that you care about. So if you care about moral purity and you know yourself to have violated the moral law, that'll hurt. Yeah, that'll sting. Feel that. And that, that, that particular sting is what we call guilty feeling or feeling guilty. On the shame side, the objective uh, condition is uh, uh, being socially diminished in, in a community of other people. So to be shamed is to be rendered a person of lesser consequence, lesser weight, uh, lesser significance in a community. Uh, the opposite of shame is honor. To be honored mm-hmm. is to be elevated in a community of other people, to be, to be rendered a person of greater consequence, greater significance, and so forth. So that's the, the shame-honor uh, condition. And then felt shame and felt honor. Well, felt shame is just that, that sting that mm-hmm. you feel when you're diminished in communities that you care about. Right? If, if, you, if you are um, uh, rendered a person of lesser significance in a community that you care about, that hurts, that stings, and that particular sting is felt shame. And if you're elevated in that community, there'll be a pleasant emotion that accompanies that elevation, and that's the emotion we call feeling honored. As you say, this whole discussion of you know what's the legitimacy or lack thereof in regards to shame fairly recent in the world's history. Um, what's produced it? Is this some function of uh, social media? Um, is it some change in our culture that's come about? Like, mm-hmm. like, sort of, what are the historical roots of this particular movement? Yeah, I think much of it, um, much of the, the, um, uh, the maligning of shame, the anti-shame zeitgeist that animates contemporary Western culture, can be traced back to uh, um, studies in in the social sciences uh, over the last uh, few decades. Um, there's been a lot of work on human emotion and on shame and guilt in particular, and the most uh, important and influential studies of shame. Uh, uh, strongly correlate the tendency to feel shame with all kinds of uh, dysfunction uh, 
uh, eating disorders, uh, violence, rage, the lack of empathy, low um, self-esteem. Low self, yeah, low self-esteem. Um, and, and so uh, if shame correlates with all of this dysfunction and guilt doesn't, right. right, then you could see why someone would conclude, well, we should lean into guilt insofar as we need some negative emotion to get us acting uh, well, and we should, we should, um, we should eliminate shame. So I think much of the anti-shame zeitgeist can be tra- traced back to this this damning evidence from the social science uh, social sciences suggesting that shame correlates with all kinds of human dysfunction. And you actually go to work on trying to look at that body of research and ask how valid is it in the yeah. book. Yeah. Yeah. So if if you're gonna if you're gonna suggest that shame correlates with dysfunction and guilt doesn't, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to somehow isolate shame-prone populations and um, Mm guilt-prone populations, and. so then the question is, well, how do you do that? I mean, you could just ask people, you know, you could say, how frequently do you feel shame? How frequently do you feel guilt? Mm-hmm. What about remorse? What about regret? And the early studies did exactly that. They just asked people. But the problem with those early studies was that uh, you can only get useful data from people with a really advanced moral vocabulary. I mean, right. how many people really know the difference between guilt, regret, remorse, shame, right. humiliation, embarrassment, right? Or uh, shame and guilt, for that matter. Or shame and guilt, for it's that matter. It's synonyms. That's right. Most people. And then try translating those studies into other languages. Uh, it, it, um, it was just impossible to gather um, wide data sets. And so those early studies were replaced with what are called scenario-based studies. And in scenario-based studies, what we do is we, we give you a, a, a short little vignette. We say something like, um, you were out with friends and you, you discovered that the conversation turned to making fun of a friend who isn't there. And then you're given several different responses. H- how would you respond to that? Right? And you're given several responses. And some of the responses are coded to indicate felt shame. And other responses are coded to indicate felt guilt. So in the example that I just gave uh, in the most uh, influential uh, study, the, it, it, one of the options is uh, if you were in that conversation, you would feel small like a rat. Mm. Right? And another option is you would feel like um, you needed to apologize or you would feel like you needed to say good things about the person who wasn't there. And if you give that latter response, um, you'll, be, you'll be sort of flagged as a guilt-prone person. And if you give the former response, you'll be flagged as a shame-prone Mm. Uh, um, person. And so that's th- these scenario-based studies are great because uh, they don't require any special vocabulary. They can be translated into all different languages. They can be modified to fit younger audiences, older audiences. And so the result is there's this massive um, and growing body of data measuring guilt, shameness, uh, guilt proneness and shame proneness. And in those studies, uh, shame proneness correlates with dysfunction and guilt proneness doesn't. But now what I've tried to argue in the book is that once you switch to those scenario-based studies and you look at the language that they use to code for uh, shame proneness, much of it could just as easily be indicative of low self-esteem, self-loathing, failures of self-respect. Somebody who came in to begin with and, and just 
volunteered that answer. That's right. And so, and we've always known that low self-esteem is bad for you, that, right. that it's going to correlate with, with, um, with poor mental health. So if our attempt to isolate shame-prone audiences is actually picking up people with low self-esteem and, and, um, and persistent self-loathing, well, of course, uh, that population is going to be uh, loaded up with dysfunction. Right. And so what I've tried to argue in the book is that the, the, the studies shouldn't be trusted because what they're picking up is low self-esteem self-loathing, failures of self-respect, and not the affective experience of shame, per se. Well, you titled your book For Shame, and in the introduction, you sort of explain it's a bit of an apologetic, in a sense, arguing for some benefits of shame, and you end up by saying, this is a book about human flourishing. And, which is, you know, odd that you wouldn't think of shame as somehow contributing, especially in the current climate, yeah. contributing to human flourishing. So two-part question. First, what's so important about human flourishing? Mm. And secondly, how could shame possibly contribute to that important vision? Yeah, good. The first part, I haven't. That, that's a good question. I haven't been asked to think about that. I, I've, I've just been taking it as a sort of datum, a, a, a starting well, point. Well, I hear a lot of people, and, uh, this isn't against you, this yeah. is just my own experience. Because I also speak a lot about human flourishing. Yeah. Um, and I hear many people using the phrase human flourishing. But, you know, when, when a phrase like that gets used enough, you, you at some point have to step back and say, well, what do we mean by that? Uh -huh. Yeah. And why is that so important if it's lifted up as well, everybody's for human flourishing? Yeah. I, I, I mean, just very crudely, I mean, what I mean is just doing well. Yeah, um, the good uh, life. Living well, yeah, the good life. And so, um, and I take it that valuing a, a life well lived um, is something Most that goes without right. without defense. I mean, yeah. uh, if you don't care about um, uh, people living well, then I don't know that we have enough <laughs> common ground <laughs> to have a real discussion. So I don't mean anything really deep or controversial by human yeah. flourishing. I just mean people living well, not not loaded up with dysfunction and right. and, and unhealth various ways. So um, how does how does so how, what does shame, shame contribute? contribute to living well? Yeah, so shame contributes to uh, living well in the same way that other painful uh, emotions do. Um, it, it's weird to talk about healthy painful experiences, but but it's not that weird. I mean, if you think about um, loneliness, for example, mm -hmm. and, and suppose we asked, what is what is the feeling of loneliness contribute to living well? Well, we'd say something like this. The feeling of loneliness, that pain, is a kind of alarm bell, right? Because we all need companionship. We need companions. And if you find yourself alone without companions, Right, your your you've been built in such a way that your yourself uh, um, uh, alerts you to that fact with a painful experience. You feel lonely, and that felt loneliness motivates the pursuit of companionship. Mm -hmm. Right, if you're completely alone and you don't feel lonely, something's broken. Right, something isn't right. Uh, uh, going well. Or if you're betrayed and you don't feel betrayed. Uh, something's broken. Felt betrayal is an alarm bell. It, it tells you something's missing. Fidelity is missing mm -hmm. in your in your um, partnerships, and and you've got to you've got to fix that problem. Shame is like that. Felt shame is a kind of alarm system. It we we need 
to belong and to have standing in communities. We're, we're, we're not built to be alone. We're built uh, to live life together. Social creatures. That's right. We're social creatures. And so the life lived well is a life of, of social existence. And when you're, when you're uh, diminished, when you lose face, when you lose standing in your community, you're built in such a way that an alarm bell goes off. That stings. That hurts. And that what that what that sting contributes to the life well lived is it is it motivates belonging. It motivates you to to do what what needs to be done to find your way back into uh, communal existence. I, I like the image that you develop in the book about a, a warning light or an alarm that goes off and people end up disarming the alarm rather than looking yeah. at the deeper issue. Yeah. I owe that metaphor to Alan Downs, so it's not – I wish I had thought of it. I, uh, <laughs> uh, but Alan D- Downs is a um, sci- psychologist and an author, and I, I think it's a really helpful metaphor for thinking yeah. about how these negative emotions work. Now, he he argues that this particular warning system, uh, uh, shame, is something we can – Should be disabled. We can safely disable. We, yeah. needed it. we need it for a time when we're developing as, as kids. But once you develop into adulthood, you should grow into the ability to, to validate yourself, to be self-validating. And once you have the ability to self-validate, he argues, there's no more need for this particular warning system. Which is in a way saying, I'm self-validating. I don't need your approval. That's right. It's an expression of I'm, the, I'm distancing myself socially from you. Yeah. And it's an expression of the kind of radical and rugged individualism that so characterizes uh, the American West, I think. Well, absolutely, and I, I love your use of the phrase radical individualism because I think that's kind of what we're into now. You talk about this in the book, and, and it, it touched off a thought for me. You said, um, why would I keep a painful warning system in place to alert me to social discrediting if I don't care about social credit? Radical individualism teaches, wrongly, that human health and flourishing can be had regardless of our inclusion or exclusion in community. Someone enamored of radical self-sufficiency may still have an interest in moral purity. He may want to do what's right and avoid doing what's wrong. Um, so the radical individualist, I don't, I don't need other people. It's kind of what that's at the core of that. Yeah. But then, if I sort of look around me at many who are behaving in what I would think is a radically individualistic way. Frequently through their choices, they, they end up sort of becoming part of another group of people yeah. who kind of had similar behavior. And then that group as a group now not only identifies as a group, but then turns around and shames the old culture that they maybe used to be a part of. Yeah. Is that a fair yeah, observation? I th- yeah. I think the, the, um, the impulse <clears throat> to belong is inescapable. Irresistible. Yeah, it's irresistible. So however however strongly you might ident- or identify as an individual or uh, idealize um, rugged individualism, um, you're going to seek belonging in a group. Uh, it's, it's not a question of whether you're going to do that. It's, it's a question of how reflective you're going to be about it, how self-conscious you're going to be about uh, the choice of the group to which you belong. My own view is that the the... the uh, the call of Jesus is to, in some ways, to uh, uh, identify or, or, or make our or sort of direct our impulse to belong to the community of Jesus loyalists, hmm. to the community of Jesus following. So, whereas your natural impulse might have been to direct that impulse to belong on your on your family of origin 
or, or something like that. Uh, the, the call of Jesus is, yes, that's an important um, uh, a belonging environment, but your primary um, environment uh, for belonging is the community of Jesus followers. Now, that's a dangerous statement. That has oh. huge implications for evangelism as we've known it in our mm-hmm. Christian subculture for yeah. generations, because what you're suggesting is what I hear you suggesting is is uh, it's not just about Jesus as my personal savior, and He's going to give me, you know, my salvation and and my happiness and and you know my meaning. You're saying, well, all that's true or somewhat true, but you're now a part of a larger community, yeah, the body of Christ, yeah. You're a called out one, yeah, into this new community, yeah. And my own view and is, if you that- don't think that way, then there's something wrong with your understanding of the gospel. Yeah, and it's not something wrong out at the edges. Right. I think it's, it's something core. wrong right, right at the core. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I think only somebody reading uh, the scriptures through the lens of, of sort of individualism training uh, mm. could come to the conclusion that the gospel is primarily about me, me and, and my personal relationship to God or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, it's it's communal right from, the, right from the word go, I think. So... Let's talk about that. Um, you're part of a community of faith, body of Christ followers. How does shame help a Christian uh, live into that role well, mm-hmm. or help that community uh, foster Christ-likeness among its members? Yeah. So the um, well, and in. in it, Part of the part of the way that it it um, it contributes is ha- has to do with the fact that shame is contagious. Uh, mm. So we we haven't talked about this yet, but yeah. but gu- guilt I think is not a contagious phenomenon. If if you have violated a standard, and I come to be in association with you, I don't some your your guilt doesn't rub off on guilty. me. Not not only do I not feel guilty, but I don't become guilty. Right. Right. I I don't become a person who violated the standard just because right. I've moved in close with you uh, right. in relationship. It's it's you that violated the standard. But shame isn't like that. Shame is contagious. If mm. if you have lost social credit and I come close to you, relationally close to you, I will lose social credit, right? As a consequence of your having lost social credit and my being close so like to you. So like the parents who son, you know, has been convicted of a crime, and they're like, oh my gosh, where did we go wrong? That's right. And, and not only do they think, where did we go wrong, they will become people of lesser consequence, lesser weight in right. their communities because of what their kid has done, or the other way around. Mm. I'll become a person of lesser weight if my father is discovered mm. to, uh, yeah. to have done something uh, shameful. So shame is contagious. And that means if, if we belong in a community and the shame and honor dynamic is at work, I'm invested in your sort of moral standing mm. uh, in a way that I'm not uh, invested if we're only talking about guilt and innocence. Because as much as I care about you being innocent, because I care about you and I want you to be innocent right. and so forth, I don't get guilty because you're guilty, right? But I do fall into shame if you fall into shame. And so I'm really invested in you not falling into shame. <laughs> so part of what the guilt-honor dynamic does in communities where it's uh, alive is it creates a community of mutual investment in one another's uh, uh, lives because we're all, we're all sort of vulnerable to one another in a way that we aren't vulnerable to one another's guilt. So I'm thinking of the Apostle Paul. Uh, particularly in his letters to, say, the Corinthians, 
and this this theme that you're describing sort of maybe gives some insight into why he is so exercised over some of the the sins and the egregious sins and the toleration of those sins yeah. among that community. It's not simply a, oh, you are doing a morally bad thing. There is that, but, yeah. but it's more you're disgracing the name of Jesus. Yeah. I'm feeling disgraced. Yeah. I can't even talk about what you're doing. Yeah, that's shameless. Shame. He was, he, was, he was accusing them of being shameless. Right. It was uh, uh, what, what the, um, the prophet Jeremiah has this really nice image of people who've lost their ability to blush. Right, and that's a really nice picture of shamelessness yeah. uh, when you just you, you don't even blush anymore uh, when you're discovered doing what you're doing. And I think Paul was worried that that uh, folks in some of his churches uh, had lost their ability to blush, and so he was saying these things as he says to your shame. <laughs> you yeah, know? literally, it's, you should be ashamed of yourselves, and, and they weren't. Mm. And then that raises a, a, a current day question, I suppose. Um, and it's one that probably deserves a whole podcast at some point on the table. Um, what do what do churches, what do Christians do with their disgraced leaders? Hmm. Where we have not only wrong, you know, sort of moral wrongs, or we violated the code of conduct that the New Testament prescribes for us, but the person having been, like you said, they have this social capital, they have this position, this power, this authority, this name, whatever, recognition, and because of their sin, you know, suddenly they've fallen in that social group that was so important to them. And uh, just as you said, the shame is, is uh, contagious, so their wife, their family, now the whole – we've sort of lost this position with these, yeah. these standing with these people. And we could talk about repentance and that, but but it's more, you know, what what happens for those people? Is or do we just put them on the shelf? Do we banish them? Do we put them out in the desert? I mean, or or is there some way that that, that we yeah. we recover? Yeah, it's a great question, and and uh, you'll understand my hesitancy yeah. to say anything in general. <laughs> yeah, uh, so many of these things, the, the details matter. The right? details matter. And so it's hard to say with, in, in a perfectly general way what we, what we should do. It's easier for me to say what we should not do. Mm. Uh, it seems to me what we should not do is what you were uh, saying at the end there, cut them putting, off. cutting them off, putting them in a desert, uh, uh, treating them as though they're a, a monster, a pariah, mm-hmm. uh, uh, what have you. That certainly is not the, the model of God toward us insofar as we have fallen into shame, and we have uh, fallen into shame. The the model of God toward us is to uh, condescend, Mm. to lower himself to our position, to identify strongly with us, Mm. and so so honor us and try to rescue us from the shame that we've fallen into. And and so many of the the stories of Jesus – uh, I think of the prodigal son, uh, for example, communicate this this image of someone who's fallen into shame and deserves to be um, in the shameful condition that they're in, uh, and uh, the father running to them, uh, um, risking uh, his own dishonor by embracing his son, identifying his son, uh, throwing a feast in honor of his son, and and actually and so loses sh- he is shamed by his other son. That's right. So I think. I think in the kinds of 
situations you're describing, uh, we will almost certainly risk our own shame, risk being dishonored, if we do for the person what God has done for us. Wow. So it's, it's vulnerable. And yet it's, it just it reminds me of the parable of the, you know, the guy that owes a, a sum of money, and the, the guy says, we'll pay up, and he finally says, I can't pay, and okay, I'll forgive the debt. You know, yeah. and then he goes out and finds some guy that reports to him who just owes a pittance, and he just <laughs> grabs a guy and you know throttles him yeah. to get to get his money back. And yeah, yeah, it's easy to forget uh, just what how we've been given. what we've been given and how deeply we ourselves have fallen into shame. Uh, we just haven't blown up on Twitter, <laughs> you know, and and this other person maybe has. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. Well, and I can see why Jesus telling that parable of the prodigal son would would invoke the, the shaming of the of his detractors. Yeah. Like this would be unthinkable in that culture. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. Interesting. Um, you've used the word shaming. Let's jump from shame to shaming and a what that is and then why that seems so toxic. Uh-huh. Yeah, so um, part of what I want to say is that uh, contemporary culture has things exactly backwards in this respect. Uh, we, we've we've come we've we've come to be increasingly suspicious of shame mm-hmm. as an emotion, thinking that it's toxic, it it um, it's unhealthy, and, and so moving towards shamelessness, and moving towards shameless. And but at the same time, we seem to be increasingly embracing of the activity of shaming. Right. Uh, uh, we we see this all, and social media has just given this activity a kind of power. Boost. We can we can shame people now uh, in a much bigger audience than we could have yeah. twenty years ago, um, and I think that's exactly backwards. I think we should be less suspicious of felt shame um, because it is an important warning uh, signal for us, and we should be more suspicious of shaming. Uh, and, and so, um, not that that not that it not that there's never an occasion uh, where uh, shaming is appropriately done. But I think it's a really dangerous activity. It's 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 like anger. We don't want to say you should never get angry, but man, you got to be careful with anger. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think shaming is like that. Uh, it's, I don't think it's quite right to say that it's never okay to shame anybody, but man, it's easy to do it badly, uh, and uh, it's done badly much more frequently than it's done well. Oh, absolutely. You know, Twitter, uh, much of social media. Yeah, it amounts to a form of road rage. Yeah, because I don't really see you as a person, but I talk about you and I denigrate you and I, you know, I say all these terrible things. I, I shame you. Yeah, and it's just uncontrollable. I mean, if you there's you, you, there's such a thing as uh, 
uh, causing someone to feel a little bit of shame when they're being shameless in their mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. In a controlled conversation where it's just you and, and that other person or it's you and, and a few people or whatever. But Twitter is a completely uncontrollable environment. As soon as you shame someone in social media, uh, you risk their becoming just a monster in in the global community of, <laughs> of other human beings. And I think that's almost, it's just impossible to, to do that as an act of love. And so that's, that's the good, I think that's the good uh, test question. If you're thinking about shaming someone because you think that's what they need, the question you always have to ask is, can I do what I'm about to do as an act of love for this person? Hmm. Not as an act of love for other people, although that's important too, but can I love this person by doing what I'm about to do? And I think it's just impossible to love someone by making them a monster in, yeah. the, in, the, uh, in the larger community of human beings. But it may not be impossible to facilitate, I'll use that word, enable them to feel that little bit of bad, yeah. like, oh, I've done something, or I've, I've, become, I've something. become something. Yeah. I've become something yeah, right. that I really don't want to become. That's right. And that's it's okay. Yeah. It's just Twitter's not the place to do it. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Puritans, I guess, they'd put people in the stocks. Yeah, you know, that's and, right. And everybody would come by all day. And, yeah. And I, I think it's very <laughs> difficult to justify that, <laughs> it seems to me. Yeah. Um, you you touched on it. Let, let's talk about shaming in our political discourse today. It, it it you've made the point. It's difficult to love someone by shaming them. And so when we talk about trying to formulate policy, um, if our political discourse descends into lots of shaming, then we're not really talking. We're not really uh, discussing anything. We're we're. It's a it's a brutal combat. Yeah, it's a power play. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oftentimes, uh, uh, in political discourse, I mean, just too often in political discourse, the the primary goal is not heightened understanding. We we don't have a political debate in order that we might both come a little closer to seeing the truth. Right. I mean, maybe you and I would, but that's just the very rare political conversation that's that's aimed at something like that. It's aimed at winning. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I, I'm we're, we're engaged in this political discussion because I've got a side and you've got a side and I want my side to win in this discussion and you want your side to win in this discussion. And, and one very powerful resource for winning in conversation is silencing. Right. If I if I can just render your voice uh, unhearable. Right. Then I will have won. Uh, so we just keep ramping up the volume. Yeah. So we just keep ra- ramping up the volume, or or um, or the act, frequency, or or diminishing the volume of or, the other. There you go. Right. And that's where shame comes in. If I, you've got a voice now, but if I can shame you, if I can cancel you. If I, yeah, if I can cancel you, which is a form, a, a manifestation of shaming. If I can shame you, and and give your person less weight, less significance, less consequence in community. That's a way of of uh, silencing your voice. And if I can silence your voice, then my side wins. And so it's a it's sort of a competition who can who can shame the other side more effectively. Right, right. <laughs> you know? And that just doesn't get anywhere anybody any closer to the truth. It seems to me. So um, I believe Philippians two, elsewhere probably in the New Testament. The flip side of this is is given: honor one another, esteem one another, <clears throat> which. I think in our context, we tend to read as 
oh, let me tell Greg what a nice person he is. You know, yeah. let me let me make him feel good, right? <clears throat> By telling him some flattering things. Okay, what I'm hearing you say is, and and I don't have the Greek in front of me, but it, it, that's not the sentiment Paul's trying to get at there. Yeah, honor means the flip side of shame. That's right. Like. This person is your brother or sister in Christ, made in the image of God, for whom Christ died. Start there and love on this person so that they experience the good. Yeah, and if you want to honor me, um, I mean, the first thing to say is, if you want to honor me, don't talk to me. Right? Don't tell me how good you think I am. Talk to everybody else about how good I am. There you go. Right? Right. <laughs> when you're talking to everybody else about how good I am, then my, then I'm elevated social in capital. community. Then I get that social capital. So I think um, all of this uh, language aimed at uh, honoring one another, esteeming one another, um, invites us to th- to think about uh, who it is in our communities who've been dishonored. Hmm. Who is it in our communities that... Um, uh, that have little voice, little um, uh, significance. Uh, you think about, uh, I think, <clears throat> for example, that uh, people with uh, visible impairments and disabilities yeah. tragically are thought of as people of lesser consequence in our communities. No, nobody wants to do that. No, nobody says, yeah, that's what I think. I think people you know, who mm-hmm. have visible impairments are of lesser consequence. No, nobody consciously does this, but, but uh, <laughs> they are treated. There's a thousand nonverbal ways of That's right, and they're treated as people of lesser consequence. So what does it mean to honor them? Right? What it means to honor them is to find ways as people who have social capital to identify with and and give voice to those people, give them uh, the seat of authoritative voice at our tables. And when we do that, uh, we're, we're lifting people out of shame, we're honoring them. We actually have a beautiful example of that here in Dallas. Mm-hmm. You, you probably haven't heard of this uh, guy, but Tom Landis is an entrepreneur, restaurateur, and he's owned several restaurants. And, but he's always had a heart for special needs people. Okay. Mm-hmm. He's always employed at least one or two special needs people in his restaurant. And then the thought came to him, you know, special needs people, they do grow up, they need to be employed, and there's actually certain kinds of jobs that are quite appropriate for them and they can do extremely well. Yeah. So he's created a uh, – it's, it's really an ice cream shop, a store, mm-hmm. Howdy Homemade Ice Cream. <laughs> the entire staff, including the management – and he's working on making somebody the owner is staffed by special needs people. Yeah, and he's beginning to franchise that model and so forth. But the whole heart behind it is, you know, these are people who lack that sort of social standing. Yeah, but they're people made in the image of God, and they need employment. I want them to have that dignity. Yeah. And it's it's an expression of what you're talking about. I'm going to honor these people. That's right. And so there's and once you start moving in that direction, it's easy to identify uh, communities of people who have little voice and little standing. Uh, um, uh, homeless folks mm-hmm. um, are paradigm examples of people. So how how yeah. can we go beyond um, caring for their sustenance needs? And into honor, mm-hmm. right? Where, where, what can we can we be creative about um, generating opportunities to 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 give them voice, to mm-hmm. give them significance and weight, or uh, people um, uh, with gender dysphoria or who are same sex attracted right. in our churches, 
right? Uh, in many of our churches, they're, they're thought of as people of lesser consequence uh, for these reasons. What kind of voice can we give them uh, that would honor them? Uh, and that one's tricky because yeah, we want to do absolutely. that without, without compromising our theological uh, commitments and the like of that. But still, uh, we're to honor one another. Well, and the, and the phrase that comes to my mind, when, when heard through the honor-shame sort of dichotomy, inasmuch as you have done it to the least of these. Yeah. Least yeah. is a ranking term, right? That's right, yeah. And so we're, we're sort of somewhere on this honor-shame continuum. That's right. He's saying, well, what about the folks down toward the bottom? That's right, yeah. If you, if you even a cup of cold water in my name, it's as if you've done it to me. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's an explicit invitation to honor uh, the dishonored. Now, we, we live in a performance-oriented culture, so those of us who have privilege, who've had access, who've had opportunities and options, you know, we tend to think of honor as, I'm going to make something of myself, I'm going to be a big deal yeah. in whatever deal I want to be big in, right? Yeah, yeah. Is that is that going against this whole way of thinking? or? Yeah, good. Um, I mean, part of what's going on there is is uh, has to do with sort of the hubris and esteem dynamic. Right. So, so I want to I want to think well of myself, uh, but it's not. I mean, usually when people want to be a big deal, it's not just that they want to succeed and they want to think well of themselves. They want to be thought well of by others mm -hmm. too. I, I don't want to just do well in secret. Right. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> I want to I want to be seen doing really uh, well in the communities that matter to me, and. Uh, when when that when that happens, I think it's an expression of this very natural impulse to to seek honor, and I mean our our the, in the eschaton we are we are destined for glorious right. uh, honor right. uh, for a, a seat uh, not just a, not a seat a, a place of work and responsibility in God's great kingdom right uh, so so we're all this impulse to to be honored in a community that matters is an expression of where we're headed mm. at least according to the Christian vision right it seems to me you make a point in the book and and I've delayed in asking about it um, I think many of our listeners would tend to say well Greg this uh, this honor shame thing I guess you picked that up when you were in China because you know, in, here in the West, we don't really we're, we're guilt innocence. Yeah. How that, that, that? I'll just give the punchline. You you knock that down in your book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, there's a kernel of truth in it, uh, which is that the the, the recent uh, Western ethos, the Anglo-Western ethos, anyway, is as we were talking about earlier, uh, an individualistic. Uh, right. Ethos, and insofar as it is individualistic in its ideals, uh, it's harder to find a home for the shame honor dynamic. Because mm -hmm. if you don't care about your standing in community, you're not going to care about shame, shame and honor. Um, but the 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 bigger truth is that both in the East and in the West, the, all of the main wisdom traditions that have shaped uh, culture, uh, starting from the Greeks informing the Western canon, mm -hmm. and starting from uh, um, uh, Confucius and and um, and the Taoist traditions, all of these traditions have um, valued the shame honor dynamic, and that's because they've been communal. 
um, traditions. They, they've been commu- they've been traditions that recognize the importance of belonging and community for flourishing or for living well. Yeah. It's only I mean we're sort of an anomaly in the mm. in the in the contemporary um, uh, Western ideals insofar as we can't find a home for shame and honor. And so with all of this recent push to kind of toss shame off the ship, as it were. You're saying you might want to tap the brakes on that. Yeah, I think you it's may just, be giving something away you didn't want to give away. That's right, and I think, and I don't think we're so far gone that we can't see that we're giving away something that we don't want to give give away. <laughs> that's, and that's beca- one way. One way to to catch a glimpse of that is uh, I, I'll often ask people, um, "What do you think of shamelessness? Mm-hmm. Uh, if somebody called you shameless, would you receive that as a compliment?" And most people still today, as, as steeped as we are in individualism, most people would not count it a compliment if someone called them shameless. Hmm. Uh, but if shamelessness is a, is a vice, right, it's the vice of not feeling shame where shame right. is apt, you know. Right. And if, if, uh, if not feeling shame where shame is apt is a vice, then there are conditions where shame is apt. And then the, the question is just what are those conditions? Well, it seems like uh, when somebody is young – they do a lot of things that then later when they grow up and sort of get a different perspective on life, they look back and they'll say, I'm so ashamed so of what ashamed. I did back there. Right? Yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and what I'm hearing you say is, well, that might be all bad. Yeah, it might not be all bad. I mean, it's, it, like, like all other human emotions, uh, it can run amok. And uh, there is such a thing as chronic shame, just as there's such a thing as chronic guilt and mm. chronic loneliness, uh, chronos having to do with time. time. So to, 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 be, to experience chronic shame is to be sort of all the time feeling what you were just describing. I'm yeah. just persistently feeling ashamed of myself. And if you're if you're experiencing chronic shame, that'll wreak havoc on your emotional life and on your mental health and you'll need to be rescued. You need help. Uh, so so I don't want to I don't want to be heard to say that there's no such thing as unhealthy shame. Mm-hmm. Uh, shame can go off the rails yeah. like any human emotion right. and when it does, it's powerfully destructive. There are a lot of people who for whom shame has just undone them. Uh, and yeah. and they need to be rescued from the destructive effects of shame in their life. Well, I know you're a philosopher, not a psychologist, but while you're on that point, mm-hmm. from your perspective and having thought deeply about this, what what do you say to the person who really is is wrapped up in sense of shame? I'm ashamed of myself. You know, I'm, I, I live with this deep sense that I'm not not worthy. Yeah. So. Um, and, and this is somebody who's sort of uh, off the rails, as it were. They're, they're persistently having yeah. this uh, ex- experience. It, it'd be a little bit like um, if somebody was feeling lonely all the time. They just couldn't escape that 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 feeling of, of loneliness, even when they were surrounded with uh, companions mm-hmm. who, who cared for them. We wouldn't. We wouldn't try to. We, we wouldn't say to that person, "Well, loneliness is a toxic emotion. Mm-hmm. You got. You got to stop feeling that altogether, mm-hmm. right? Because loneliness is an important warning signal." What we would say is, we we would try to. We'd try to help them to appreciate the companionship that's around them. We'd say, "Look at look at Fred over here. Fred mm-hmm. Fred loves you. you. Look look. Right. He he just brought you dinner. This is great." We we try to highlight for them uh, the the companionship that they. Uh, enjoy in, t- in order to get their feelings in line with what's real. When a person is just 
persistently and chronically in shame, what we often need to do is just remind them you, uh, of their glorious nature as an image bearer of the creator of the universe. You, you are magnificently made. We take them to person. the honor side of the equation. That's right. That's right. So what we don't say is, oh, that painful feeling you're having, that's toxic. That's let's a, get rid of it. Let's get rid of that. What we say is, you know, uh, there's another side to this. And that that bad feeling should drive you to your knees to be in the presence of God yeah. as well as other believers. That's right. To pay attention to that. Yeah. It's like an, I use the example in my my book. Uh, if if uh, you've got a warning light in your car that's gone haywire, right? The, the light that – for me, it's the light that tells you you've got to change your oil. Right. You know? If it's just always on, right, even when you don't need an oil change – it's really tempting just to cut the wire, just, just right. disable that uh, that warning system. But we can all see that'd be a mistake. That'd be a big that'd mistake. Be a, <laughs> that'd be a big mistake. We need that warning light. What we need, what we want is for the warning light to be sensitive to the condition of your car. Yeah. And what we want is for our emotions to be regulated, right? We want them to be uh, sensitive to what's actually going on. Well, speaking of warning lights, we are now out of time. I uh, I hate to cut this short. I feel like we've just gotten started. Yeah. But I want to thank you, Greg, for being with us. The book, again, For Shame, Rediscovering the Virtues of a Maligned Emotion. Um, thank you very much for writing it. Thank you. And I want to thank you for joining us on The Table podcast. Again, we discuss issues of God and culture. We invite you to subscribe to The Table on your favorite uh, podcasting site. I'm Bill Hendricks. Come back and see us. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.